Steve Purdue, episode 600, the one and only. I don't have any confetti or balloons, but I should. And uh, we were just talking about a quote from General James Mattis. Jim Mattis. James. Jim Mattis. Uh, pattern re- or Intuition is subconscious pattern recognition. Nothing more, nothing less. And his other quote, if you have not read hundreds of historical <clears throat> books, you are functionally illiterate. And I think they go together. The more data you pull in, the bigger your intuition net is and it's yeah well that reminds me of of a book that i'm very fond of uh it's called the gift of fear which doesn't sound like it's on topic but guess what it is the gift the premise of the gift of fear is it's from a guy who spent his life in law enforcement and he said over and over again when somebody gets mugged or raped or you know just something bad happens to them they very often had a feeling, oh, I shouldn't be there, or that guy scares me. And then they thought, oh, I, 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 I don't know what I'm talking about. I'll, I'll just go that place or be with this person. But it turns out that in almost every case that, that he dealt with as, as a policeman, the person had some intuition that their rational mind overrode. Yeah. And so he, he you know, his... The message of his book, The Gift of Fear, is if, if your mind's telling you something, listen to it. Because the mind's, I mean, how many trillions of connections and cells are there that, that we store information that doesn't really reach our conscious mind? Mm-hmm. But it's there. Oh, yeah. Uh, Don the Pleb, you know, he served in Iraq. He talks about all the time, you know, they're all on patrol and someone would just be like, everyone slow down. And it's something that maybe didn't enter the conscious mind's eye, but then it turns out maybe it was they saw something that remind, reminded them, and they end up finding like right like a landmine or something. And it's it's and it's not some magical thing. It's you saw something. Maybe it was the glint of metal, and you're not paying attention to it, and it doesn't come across. Like my conscious mind is right. Knock on the door. Go answer the door. Versus like that subconscious i just don't have a good feeling about this thing i just don't you don't know what it is and your gut's saying just don't do it and you're like i'm not gonna do it and then it turns out bad yeah well again to quote the gift of fear now his view is that we didn't survive this long in this planet yeah without having all sorts of like the hair on the back of your neck rising you know just there are clues that we don't put into words. Maybe they don't even reach the monitor of our mind, but they're there yeah. and don't ignore them. It's like dogs like barking before a storm, you know, or, uh, you know, they say like, a, you know, a dog can like read someone's intentions. They'll say like if a dog is like growling at like a guest or someone, something is not good. Maybe you just have a bad dog. But like it's also there are things. Yeah, we're. Yeah, I don't think we survived this long. I don't think we got, came from the trees and on the plains of Africa. I don't think we got to this point with because we didn't always have scientific explanations for things. So I think a lot of time it might have just been like, I'm getting a bad feeling about that patch of woods and there's a lion in there, right? Okay, and you who acted on that that intuition uh, didn't get eaten by a lion and you have and more progeny, and- yeah. Yeah. So we fine honed when we've selected for, for intuition. 
right? We've selected for this thing that is like, I'm just not, you know, so it's, you have to trust it. You always have to trust it. There's something, there's something that's directing you. And I often find when I have to rationalize it, unless it's like, unless it's like a genuine like phobia, like that, or that's maybe irrational. Like for a couple of years after my brother died, I was just terrified of flying. I had never had that problem before. And when I'd get on a flight, I would just have to drink myself stupid beforehand. And there was no part of me that's like, maybe I subconsciously saw something wrong with the plane and I know it's going to, it was like, I know what this is. I'm dealing with like the loss of a sibling and it's this existential thing. And I just kind of had to, I was like, Hey, get on the plane. You're fine. Maybe I just have to have 10 beers beforehand. But like, and then eventually it subsided. It lasted for a couple of years. And so like things like that, where maybe you can rationalize it and understand why it's at, but other things where it's just, you meet someone and it's just, I don't know. Something's just not, you know, you, you go to, you pour a glass of milk and you're like, is that sour? Like you can't quite tell, you know, when it's like, it's not obviously sour, but okay. What's the, what's the what's the pro cons? The pro is okay. I don't waste a glass of milk. The cons are I get food poisoning. I'm throwing up all afternoon. Uh, There are just some things that kind of, I don't know. They needle away. I don't know how we got onto this Mitzi. But. Okay, but I, I'm, I'm going to say that I'm pretty sure it's not a perfect guide, but I'm willing, I'm willing you know, just playing the odds, if, if something gives me a really bad feeling that I'm going to pay a lot of attention to it. Yeah, yeah, because what's the, what's the downside, right? Now, if it starts running your life, if you, right, now you're scared to leave your apartment because you're trying to list every little intuition. It's like, well, that, that might, you know, now that's at a detriment. But um, so for the last episode, we meant to get into your book and we never did. And so we postponed it. We ended up talking about Gordon Chang and China, which I loved, by the way. I absolutely loved it. Oh, my mom loved it, too. Actually, I got I got feedback from relatives that they loved it. So I don't think we did a bad thing. No, getting not at all. completely off topic. But maybe I should introduce myself with the terrible thought that it's possible that somebody doesn't know me. Imagine that. Miss Mitzi yeah, Purdue. It can't be imagined. No, no. Please, please introduce yourself, Miss Mitzi Purdue. Super, because what I think I have two ways that I would like to celebrate your 600th podcast. And the first part, and if we spend the whole time on that, I'm cool with that. Uh, it's talking about you and your career because I'm completely addicted to <laughs> deal with it. Um, no, I'm completely addicted to your podcast. I, I, I have told the world that I think that you have a better data bank of, of stories and analogies and ways of clarifying things than Joe Rogan himself does. Uh, how's that for a compliment for your 600? Getting me, get Deal me. with it. Deal <laughs> with it. The other thing that we're supposed to talk about is I have a new book. Is it possible to share screen? If not, I'll just describe it. Describe it because oh. I have still yet to figure out how to actively allow people to share. I'm st- I'm terrible with it. Okay, but that's fine because I will simply describe it. And uh, viewer, listener, audience, please imagine that this is just the most wonderful thing you've ever heard about ever. Mm-hmm. Okay, here it is. I'm describing my new book. It's called The Frank Purdue Way. It's got a really handsome picture of him on the cover. And it's... It's billed as being a life-changing classic. (laughs) 
and it's simple, simple steps to super success. And the whole thing of it is, first of all, it's part of a series. It's, I think there are 34 in the series and people who've been chosen for this include like Walt Disney, General Patton, Andrew Carnegie, uh, did I say Hershey? Just a whole lot of really famous, knowledgeable, successful people. And the idea is what can you learn for them in 60 short pages? And it's put out by a group their, their nickname is the Pocket Rockets, and they have these these books. It's about the size of I don't know half a bread, half a loaf of bread. Uh, that that's that width, and but the thickness is about maybe a quarter of an inch. The idea is you can probably read it in half an hour. On the other hand, people have told me that they'll read a chapter, think about it, and then read another chapter. And what it's all about is Frank Purdue. When he was growing up, there was almost nothing that would have predicted that, that this shy farm boy would head an organization that at its best sells products in 50 different countries, employs 21,000 people, and is a global brand. How did, how did a shy country boy who wasn't particularly academically gifted that we know of, what did he do that made him grow from no employees to 21,000. And the premise of the book is, ta-da, this is the magic key to everything. Are you ready? No, of course you're ready. Yes. The magic key to everything is he had a talent stack. He learned to, he wasn't the best in probably a hundred different things, but he was very, very good at a hundred different things, which meant that when he had a problem to solve, like Tommy Carrigan, he had a vast data bank. I hope you're smiling. Yes, I you're am. smiling. I am. All right, like Tommy Carrigan, he had a vast data bank of ideas and wisdom to draw from. And interestingly enough, he wasn't born with the talent stack. He was actually, he was a very shy boy. When when he was a kid, he, he in general went to school and then as soon as school was over he ran back home to help his father on the family farm he he didn't in general didn't engage in after school activities he was never in a school play and as for college he went to Salisbury State which was a teacher's college but then he realized mm, I don't have the patience for this I think I'll go home and work on the farm with my dad until I figure out what I want to do in life and he never left, yeah. but he did, he did develop skills along the way. And one of the first that I know of is he was an extremely shy person. His father wanted to help him overcome his shyness and gave him a really tough job for somebody with Frank's personality. He got Frank to be a salesperson. He, his job was helping sell feed corn to farmers. And Frank told me, you know, we, we, we often discuss things like this. He said it was incredibly hard for him, a shy person, to have to go get people to buy his product. It was just, you know, it was just for his personality, it was as uncongenial as anything the world could be. He told me that when he'd go out, you know, trying to sell feed cord to farmers, you know, he knew that you're supposed to look your prospect in the eye and maybe glad hand them. 
he told me that at least at the beginning, that all he could do was stare at his field boots and mumble. <laughs> you know, not, not a good, for, for a person who became a marketing, a global marketing icon, could you imagine that, that he, you know, how much he had to learn to get to be good at that? But he also realized, you know, I know at one point he took the Dale Carnegie course and one of the premises that you learn in Dale Carnegie is at least the salesmanship course is that nothing in the world happens until you make a sale. And what Carnegie meant by that is a sale is when you persuade somebody of something mm -hmm. and maybe it's to go out on a date with you, or maybe it's to buy a seed corn or whatever it is that salesmanship and particularly persuasion is just one of the most important skills that you can develop. So Frank began developing it. He began noticing what worked, what didn't work. And some of the conclusions that he came to, and this could help anybody if you're in sales, is he would never sell anything unless he was absolutely convinced that your life is going to be better off if you have this, whatever it is. And his goal was to know so much about the product and so much about how it could help you. He wasn't going to sell to you if it didn't. His goal was to know so much about the product that you were like the company's research person to find out what they should buy. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, it, I, I think I'm, I'm making this up as, a, as I speak, but I think I'm going to be right. I think that he looked on it as a service. Mm -hmm. Now, I am helping you by getting you something that's going to make your life better mm -hmm. or easier or save money. You know, in one way or another, he, for him, salesmanship involved just having a real deep belief in what he was doing. All right, that was one part of the talent stack. But other parts that he had to learn. Well, if he was going to grow his company, he had to learn to be a leader. So what are the ingredients in leadership? And among them, possibly in a way it gets back to salesmanship. But for him, being a leader meant persuading other people to buy into his vision. And that meant being extraordinarily persuasive. And yeah, it kind of gets back to salesmanship. There's more to it than just salesmanship. He felt that leadership was very reciprocal, as in, or should I, should I stop monologuing? No, 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 I'm, no, I'm fascinated. Keep going, keep going. Thank you. No, I, I think it's a sin for a, a guest to monologue too no, long. No, Mitzi, be quiet. I'm thoroughly enjoying this. All right. Okay, so what what are the leadership skills? What are the things that made people stay with him for life and always be willing to go the extra mile? Well, as his wife, but also as a writer and somebody with a master's in public administration, I used to take notes watching him in action. And here's something that I noticed. He was very good at making people feel important, valued, treasured, that what they had to say mattered. And how did he do that? I would say that he was almost an Olympic-level listener, that, that he was, if there were an Olympics for listening, uh, he would have aced it. But that's a skill that anybody could learn. And here's, here's some of the things that I observed for you know, the listening that makes you feel important and that makes you feel that your ideas and suggestions count. Number one, and this I found staggering, but here it is. 
I felt that in any situation I ever saw him in, whether you know in the back of a cab talking with a cabbie or in a in a business meeting, in a board, well, in a sales meeting, in at a party, anywhere, Frank's MO was he'd listen 90% of the time and only talk 10% of the time. And and his style of listening was certainly different from average. Because while he's listening, I could tell from his response to what people said that he wasn't just thinking, hmm, that person's babbling, 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 what am I going to say next? No, he was absolutely, I mean, figuratively hanging on every word that the person was saying. And something else that I observed, and I'm told that Bill Clinton used to do the same thing, that Oh, I'm also told that Prince Charles used to, or does the same thing, but but very successful people, and Frank, I think, was preeminent in this. When they're listening to you, you get the feeling that you're the only person in their world. Mm-hmm. And he did that. I, I used to think, you know, Frank Purdue had an aura, that aura which is reaching around yeah. and enveloping you. It was, it was. It was extraordinary. And I'd, I'd watch him do that, whether it was a waiter taking care of us at a restaurant or, you know, wherever. When Frank was listening, it was just all in. He, he wasn't looking around the room to see who else is there or, or noticing your tie or whatever. No, he was listening to every single word. And then another thing that he did as a world champion listener, he would he would actually take notes. If, if you said something, he would follow up on it. And I think this is somewhat unusual, but, but Frank kept in, in his coat pocket a series of white pieces of paper. They're about the size of, they're blank, and about the size of playing cards. And he'd frequently have like maybe 10 or 15 in his pocket. And he had this gold cross pen but somehow he never lost. That amazed me because I, you know, for 17 years, he always had this gold cross pen. But you've said you've said something really interesting, like a book to read, or maybe a movie to see, or or maybe an idea for who knows what. Frank would take out his gold cross pen, take out a uh, one of these pieces of paper, and in his tiny tiny writing, he'd write on this piece of paper whatever whatever he was supposed to do as a follow-up. I mean, maybe it was to introduce you to somebody. Maybe it was to, I don't know, send you a book. Whatever it was, the, the, one of these little playing card-sized pieces of paper, it would probably have, I'm going to guess, maybe 12 items on it. And he kept these pieces of paper in his pocket until he had acted on every single one that he had had from anybody that he'd been talking with. And when he had when he had acted on one of the things that his listening had led him to think was important, he crossed it off. Can I, and, can I show you that I, on my phone, I keep a list of everything I'm supposed to do. Every When I'm on a, do a podcast and they recommend a book or someone says something, I get an email and I put a red dot next to them. And then once I do it, I turn it to a green dot. And that's, that's beautiful. 
Oh, that's beautiful. I've been, hey, yeah, I've been doing that every day for a year, year plus, two years almost. But Mr. 600 Podcast Carrigan, please hold it up again because I think it's so valuable. I, I think that I, I had said that Frank had a talent stack and, and one of them was that, uh, that he was good at listening and acting. I'm not done with you, Tommy Carrigan. Hold it up again because I want to talk about it. What you are doing is exactly what Frank did, except this is a 2021 version of it. Yeah. You, okay, you may... Uh, what's that wonderful word? Uh, there's a game that people used to play, and it wasn't Red Light, which is on my mind, because if you watched the Squid Game... I did watch the first episode two weeks ago with my brother. Okay, well, there was a childhood game also called Mother May I. Um, and you and I are now playing Mother May I, because I give you permission to put it down. I give you permission to put my phone... Mother, may I, Mother May I put my phone down? Except, except since I'm your honorary grandmother. Honorary uh, grandmother, grandmother may, I. may I. Grandmother may I. It's, hey, I, I'm perfectly happy to go back to talking more about my book. I'd love to. No, no, keep, doing, keep talking about Frank. But I so want to make a great big deal of, of being your guest on the 600th podcast. Okay, I will weave it back in. Trust me, I'm good at this. Keep don't don't question yourself. Don't doubt yourself, Mitzi. Take take the reins and go back. I was just showing you that I do. I have to do it because I'll for, I'll forget. So if I get an email from someone, I literally have to write down like email him back today, and I and I have that whole list. So at the end of the day, I don't have any. I think that might be why I sleep well. It's because I'm never like, did I do? I'm like, I have the list and I checked virtually everything off. I'm done. And that's my contract with myself that I'm I'm good to go. It's over. I can go watch TV, play video games, go to bed, whatever. Do you know why Napoleon said he slept well? And trust me, it's relevant to your list. Why? All right. Napoleon had, you know, he was one of the biggest con- world conquerors ever. I mean, he's surely in the top. 10, maybe top five. And if you, if you're, if you have armies of 800,000, yeah, you got a lot going. How do you sleep at night? Somebody asked him that. And he said, in his mind, he has a list of what needs to be done and what's kind of pending. And he imagines there, or he imagined that they were in file drawers. And in his mind, before going to bed, he'd look at each of the file drawers in his imagination and shut them one by one. And so by the time he had shut everyone, he drifted off to sleep. Yeah. So, but, but I think in, in your case and certainly in mine, and I watched it with Frank, having it actually written down and then acting on it, first of all, it makes you, I'm going to guess, 10 times more effective than the person who doesn't do that. Uh, but also, I think, I think your mind is clearer if it's mm-hmm. written and you don't have to keep revisiting it. Well, that's why I do it is like, cause when I meditate, my mind's always flying around and sometimes it's, it's not a productive meditation where I try to just center myself. Cause instead it's, did I do this? Did I do that? Did I do the other thing versus now I can have a million things I need to do, but I'm like, it's all on the notepad. Yeah. All right. Well just knock them off one by one. Like we're good. So it's as long as you have the to-do list, that's 90% of it. Then you just have to do it. But it's an incredible productivity tool that I would recommend to absolutely everybody. And it sure took Frank a long way because I can imagine that the executive who isn't taking notes like Frank did probably misses hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Then uh, another part of his talent stack, he was spectacular at networking. 
And I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, and we're talking from Salisbury, Maryland, which is where Purdue headquarters is. Uh, I'm going to give an example of a charity that he supported. But the, the example I'm going to give, it could, it could apply to any of hundreds of events would go to throughout the year. But let's imagine that you're going to a charity fundraiser or some charity event, or for that matter, it, maybe it's a convention that you're going to. Anything uh, where you're with a large group of people and you want to you want to network. I mean, I'm personally a big believer that it's so important who you know as well as what you know. And I, I don't really want to guess which is more important, but I swear to heaven that, that who you know takes you a long way. Oh, yeah. Well, well he, when he would go to a networking event, and let's say it's United Way, and let's just for imagination's sake say that there are going to be 150 people there, that it begins at 6 o'clock, I would notice that pretty much invariably, Frank was strategic about his networking. We would pretty much invariably arrive a couple of minutes early. Because if you're going there, you've probably spent money and you're investing time in, in the networking. Why not be there for the, from the very beginning? But that gave him the chance. He would stand at least somewhere near the entrance, you know, the, the door that people go through so that he could talk with people as they came in. And I, I would notice, and again, this is something that I regard as invariable, if there were a hundred or fewer people there, he would have talked with every single person by the, end of the, by the end of the time. I mean, it was just very, very intentional. And people, at least if you're fairly high up in business, you attend charity events, you attend political events, partly to be seen supporting whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then also for, um, for networking. Frank wasn't a wallflower standing in the side somewhere. Nope. He talked with every single person intentionally. And I, I have the impression, since I go to a lot of these things, that the average person hasn't figured out what Frank has or what Frank did, which is be intentional about it. In fact, maybe ahead of time, look at the guest list or the, and, and see who you really want to talk with. Then, you know, another thing that he'd do, oh, well, wait, let me, let me still stay with networking. And this is harking back to, you know, his pocket with those white cards in his pocket. If he would get a business card, and I guess we don't use this anymore, but but maybe what I'm about to say translates into what you write on your phone. Okay, so what I'm about to say, it's, it's from back 20 years ago. So translate it into what goes on today. But say you'd get a business card and maybe you'd promise the person to send a book or maybe product or whatever. He would write on the business card what it was that he had promised and you know, what the connection was. And I always thought that was brilliant because it's so easy, or at least in the time of business cards or, or contact information that you get, you're back in your hotel room that night. Mm -hmm. You go through 30 or 40 cards. And, you know, if you've got 
a memory that's far better than mine. Maybe you remember 10 or 15, but you don't remember all 40. Yeah. And everyone that you don't remember is a lost opportunity. You invested time and money and transportation to get to this event. Maximize it for every single one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do that. I do that with, with people that I'm finding lists for or people not finding lists for people that I'm lining up to be guests. Don't just write their name down because if I don't recognize it, it kind of gets lost in the fray. And then you're like, well, I'll throw that one out. It's just a name versus if you this name and then you put in parentheses, you know, knows this guest or in parentheses, this book, this topic, it's just little time. And well, and what I know is I, I emailed two new guests every single day, two people that I've never talked to before, not, not setting up recurring guests, two new, like pioneering emails to new people every single day. And I know that it's probably like once every 10 days you get a hit. So 20 emails out, you get one back. So every single one is worth it. You have to follow through with every single one because it's a 5% success rate. And if you are missing out on the one that is going to say yes, well, then the whole endeavor is for naught. So, yes. Actually, I think some of, of our audience knows that my father was the co-founder and president of the Sheraton Hotels. And you've just mentioned something that was a big part of his talent stack. He said that he felt that something that gave him a leg up in his competitors was that he wouldn't, that turnstones didn't particularly discourage him, yeah. that, that he'd, he'd just keep plunging on. And if, it, if, if the yield of whatever he was after was 100 to 1, if the, if the prize was worth it, if, if, I, I, I don't know exactly you know, he told me this, and I don't know exactly what circumstance he'd be referring to. So use your imagination. But here's what he told me. He said, in something that had a high payoff, but a low probability of success, he felt that his competitors might just give up after 20, maybe 30 or 40. He'd go to 100 before he'd give up. So what I hear you saying has to do with tremendous persistence. And I would say that persistence was surely part of Frank's, uh, I'm trying to say my, my late father's talent stack, just sticking to it. Well, that's what I've found is if it's only one in 20 people say yes, so that's, I mean, so what? So once every 10 days you get a yes. So if you get three yeses a month, well, I have found that it's, it's the inverse. About 90 to 95%, if not more, uh, percent of guests that come on will come on a second time and will come and then become and then after if they've come on twice then it's like 99 percent they'll come on a third time and become recurring guests so even though i might only win three a month out, out of 60 emails if i get three new guests a month well now i've been doing the podcast for close to 24 months i mean so if i've added what 72 new recurring guests, well, that right there is I could not get a hit for two straight months. And that's, I still have 72 guests that I could just line up for 72 straight days and not have a, uh, not have a repeating guest. So it's such, it doesn't matter how small the win percentage is because now they fall into the cycle of like, now I've got another card in the book that I could, I mean, I've probably got, 
I don't know, maybe 80 to 90, like, guests that at any time I can reach out and within a week have them back on is you get this sort of big, like, like lottery, like, you know, like spinning the wheel with like the ping pong balls in it. I'm like, I know I have them. Like I just, and I'm always trying to get new ones and throw in there, but I've got this recurring machine to where I could have no one respond to my emails for two months. And I could very simply go back and go through my whole library and have 60 episodes in a row with, without repeating a guest. And, and actually, that would enchant me because so I've, I've gotten actively fond of some of your guests. Um, what's Claire's last name? Lopez. Claire Lopez. Oh, love her. I know. Oh. Yeah. And I mean, she, she's just the best of the best. Yeah, she's brilliant. And I'm thrilled to hear that you're getting Gordon Chang back. Yeah, he's going to come on in, in January. And it's you get these guests and... Yeah, and I've found, and not only that, not only does it help that they're recurring guests, I found like the second and third episodes are often far better than the first one because the first one's this weird kind of blind date vibe to it, you know, versus when you ease into it and you kind of know what it is, you just right off the bat, you just get into it and it's flowing that much better. And yeah, it's, it's, but it really is, it's a numbers game and it really is, is like you can't, when you when someone requests someone or here's a guest that wants to come on or something, you really can't turn down any of them or you, and you can't, you know, I try to respond to every email within 24 hours because you can't have one guest who gets a sour taste in their mouth. They're like, yeah, I talked to Tommy once and it took him five days to respond to me and, you know, screw that. You never know who comes on, loves it and goes, oh, by the way you know, my uncle's Bill Gates. Do you want to have him on your podcast? And well, no, he's kind of, a, a, I don't really like him, but like, you know, my uncle's Elon Musk or something, or Derek Jeter. Like you never know. And some people might say, well, that's kind of ludicrous. Has that ever happened? More often than not, a guest who I had no idea has put me in touch with a much bigger guest that I never and would I, have gotten before. But I've also noticed that some of your guests that were kind of like, quote, mistake guests, like you, you had one that was another favorite of mine. And I'm not good enough at names, but I'll tell you the circumstance and you'll remember it. You called to get somebody and you ended up finding somebody who reads, who's a voice. A uh, narrator. Narrator. Oh, yeah. Uh, no. It was so good. I, I've thought of that so often because I'm, I'm an audible addict. And, and now I know more of what goes into reading those things. It's it's absolutely increased my enjoyment of Audible, knowing some of the factors that go into it. I mean, it was incredibly cool. I've had on three mistake guests. I've had on two narrators. Uh, Malcolm Hillgartner is one. Uh, Noah Levine is another. And those are ones where I had looked at the title of the Audible book and just thought that was the author. And then another one I got was Jason Kelly a couple weeks ago, who has the same name as an author I was going for. But this is this guy. He's a finance guy that lives in Japan. He's an expat, and he came on, and we ended up having a great episode. And it's just a dude that I, he was like, "I think you have the wrong Jason Kelly." And I was like, "Do you want to come on my podcast?" And he was like, <laughs> "He was like, screw it, sure." And I was like, "Let's do this thing." I don't know a thing about finance, but we we laughed our tails off for two hours, and it was a great guest. Yeah, it's it's, and the thing is, is like what I'm doing now. I wasn't doing at the beginning of the podcast. The beginning of the podcast, I was so focused on like, I have to get super huge guests. I've got to get this person and that person. And when I'd have a 
a person who I didn't necessarily think was like a celebrity guest, I wouldn't pursue them as hard. Versus now, I love when I get it like a big guest, but I found that that's not at all like what makes the podcast. What makes it is a bunch of tiny little episodes that people come to enjoy. And then if it works out that I get a huge guest, it's that's kind of a cherry on top. Versus, it's like winning the lottery after like a life of like savings. It's like, oh, what a nice little luxury. We retired and we got an extra million versus like banking on the lottery. Like I don't have $10 in the bank, but I'm going to get that scratch off, baby. And it's like, that's a, that's a risky approach, you know, that <laughs> you're trying to retire and you're just banking on scratch offs. So I don't know. Everything I'm doing now is I'm still learning. It really is just I'm, I'm still making it up as I go, if that makes sense. I, th- I think you're polishing your art, though, because, uh, again, Joe Rogan, I know you hate being compared to him favorably, but deal with it. I love him. <laughs> no, I love Joe Rogan, but as far as guests go, I mean, I actually, 99% of the time, prefer your guests. And what, you know, whether they're famous or not, because I'm, I'm going to learn something that's fun. I have some guests that I would give anything to see on Joe Rogan, just so not even for my own gain, just so that they would get a bigger voice. Dr. McCullough, Dr. Malone, inventor of the mRNA vaccine, and Charlie Duke, who walked on the moon. Those three guys I would love to see on Rogan, not so I could get a shout out, but just because those are genuinely fantastic guests that I would love to see on a bigger platform. Well, I want my Claire Lopez to be yes. on the road. Yeah. I don't know why he hasn't had on Malone, though. Malone seemingly made all the circuits. Uh, he's been on Fox News. like, And he's and Joe Rogan's never had on Charlie Duke or, or Buzz Aldrin. I mean, there's four men in the world alive that have walked on the moon. And I think two of them are, from what I've gathered, they're very fragile. And I think their families have kind of cut them off from interviews. Uh, I've gotten in touch with family, and they've kind of, you know, like, hey, you know, he's, he, you know, he really can't do an interview. I'm like, got it. You know, I read you loud and clear, but even that, like there's four of there's So there's two really that are a lot you can do buzz and, and, uh, Charlie Duke. And neither of them have been on Rogan. And like, it, well, what, what about another author that, that I love and that I want you to have on, uh, Michael Schoenberger. He's coming out at the end of November. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I've got to mention that in all my in all my social media. Yeah, he's coming. Yeah, he he was just on Joe Rogan and just on Tim Pool, and who Rogan has ten million followers. Tim Pool has a million, and now he's coming onto my podcast, which has been banned from YouTube, and is uh, sitting at about four hundred subscribers right now. So, yeah, it's I've now I've completely hijacked the conversation from talking about your book. I apologize. Well, actually, I'm content as can be because uh, I really, really wanted to be your your 600, 600th podcast. Well, and and if we didn't get into what you're doing, uh, I'd feel bad. So it, it's just perfect with me. Uh, let's see. I figure that we have six minutes left before I've got a hard stop, darn it. Uh, let me see what I can sure. tell more about the book. It's coming. It's going to the printers as we speak. It will be available on Amazon digitally, oh, imminently. It's called The Frank Purdue Way by Mitzi Purdue. 
Frank Perdue was my late husband, for those of you who haven't heard introductions of me in the past. It's, it's tips that each one of which is fairly easy, but it's about developing a very broad talent stack where you can be useful to your employer or if you're self-employed, useful to yourself. And it's, um, it includes things like something that you do, Tommy, and that is Frank was what I call an informivore. And that means somebody who devours information. And you know, like you, he used to listen to audio. Well, what in his in his in his eighties, even in his late seventies, it was hard for his eyes to to read. Mm-hmm. So it became audiobooks. But he on almost any topic you could name, uh, he'd listen and he'd know. And he his his efforts of of just learning ideas because he said, you know, you never know which key turns the lock. You know, never know which good idea is going to be a benefit. And I think that by having a stupendous data bank of ideas, and one of the things that I noticed about him in his being an informivore, somebody who's always looking for new information, is that his reading, I would describe it as undisciplined. And, and I think he liked it that way because kind of the broader a field that you go, the more the interesting, more in, yeah. yeah, the more innovative ideas. And as an example of, of the things that Frank Purdue studied, he was really into the founding fathers mm-hmm. so much that we actually went to, I think it's Nevis Island in the Caribbean where uh, Alexander Hamilton was born. I'm not sure of the Nevis. I think that's right. But in any case, here we are on the island where Alexander Hamilton was born, and we make a beeline for the museum. And the museum is is empty except the docent who's there. She starts showing us around. It's about an hour to go through the whole thing. And somewhere, you know, a few minutes into it, we came across an item, and she didn't know what it was. Well, Frank knew exactly what it was and explained it to her. And pretty soon, as we're going around this museum, looking at exhibit after exhibit, it changed from the docent telling what was going on to Frank explaining to the docent. And she'd ask, well, what was this? Or why did he use that? Or what did this mean? Or where did this fit in history? And Frank knew every time. I mean, his knowledge of Alexander Hamilton meant that he was telling the docent stuff that she didn't know. I mean, is that not the coolest that a captain of industry whose specialty is poultry yeah. knows that much about Alexander Hamilton? Yeah, it becomes the Frank Purdue tour. But it's the thing is, is like I've, I think I've said that before with you, and I know I got to let you go in three minutes. Is but I really do think there's only so. I'll try to wrap this up in in three minutes. Is like Joseph Campbell, right? The hero's journey. He, he said that there are 17 steps that every hero in every literature work shows from, from Jesus in the Bible to uh, Shakespeare's to Harry Potter to Lord of the Rings to whatever. It's the same call to adventure, the belly of the way. It's all the same things. And just like, you know, and I've used this analogy before with you, you know, like learning math in like first and second grade. Bob has five watermelons. Susie ha- takes one. How many does he have left? And then the next one is Kevin has 10 dogs and he don't need gives away two. How many dogs? 
it's the same. We're using different variables, whether it's apples or pies or dogs or basketballs, but you're learning the same general things, right? Laws of mathematics. I really do think that there's only like a handful of, of, of like recurring themes in this universe we find ourselves in. I mean, we all know the really basic ones, right? Like what goes around comes around, like, which is the golden rule and all the, all the, um, all the religions, right? Which is also, and this is what I wrote about in my uh, personal statement to get into medical school was, isn't that interesting how at the core of every religion is the golden rule goes around, comes around. And then what's the core of all science for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It's all boiled down to the same thing, push and give. But that's why I listen to so many books is I think there's really only like, I don't know, I had, I, I've never actually tried to like flesh them out. I think there's only like five or 10 kind of like core themes in this universe and they are they come up as a history of Napoleon or Alexander Hamilton or Kellogg's cereal or how the pyramids were built. But if you listen to enough things in enough different fields, you get down to the same sort of core issues. And it's, it all kind of boils down to like what goes around comes around. Hard work is rewarded. The truth always comes out. Uh, never give up. There are all these kind of things that I think the more you listen to, and that's why I... Right, I just had on Richard Rhodes on Friday to talk about his book about the Einsatz Group and in the Holocaust, and now I'm listening to a book about Victorian surgery. Like it's completely different things, yet at the same time there are the same general themes, and that's that's why I and like you said, un, unstructured, undisciplined, is I just play the books, and I just, if I if there's something good in there, I subconsciously pick up on it. I might go through a whole book, and it just goes in one ear and out the other. Just play it. Just let it run. Don't tr don't turn it into homework where I got to go back and redo that chapter. But it's six fifty, and I know you have to go, so I will give you. An I'm ad. done. Oh, I hate going. Oh, I know. I know. I'll tell you who I'm talking to, even though it's a Sunday evening. You want to know about Mitzi's social life? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. My boss at Psychology Today. Uh, I, I work for Psychology Today. I, I write a weekly blog. And uh, she asked me to have a conversation with her. And uh, I, I think I know that it's going to be good because she just told me that the latest article, actually, she didn't tell me, I saw. And she told me that I think Psychology Today has like 100 things that they publish each week. But uh, mine, my last one was in the top six. And so it, it's featured. And so I think she's in a good mood. Um, but I want to get ready for it. Good. Well, as well as you should. So, Miss Mitzi Purdue, I will put the links to your book in the description as always. And until next time, thank you so much for coming on. 600 episodes. Happy 600th. And I'm so honored to be a part of it. We are closer to 1,000 now than I was to. Hey. Yeah, so, I'm excited about that. I'll let you go. You got to get ready. Mitzi Purdue, okay. thank you so much. God bless. Stay safe, everybody. Recording stopped.